Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's late July 2020, and it seems increasingly likely, if you trust the polls, that uh, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States uh, in the November election. And so the question preoccupying pundits is what kind of president would Joe Biden be or what kind of president will he be? Uh, one person who I think thinks in a very original way about American politics is uh, Janan Ganesh. He's the Financial Times' U.S. political columnist and, uh, and a refreshingly counterintuitive thinker. He just wrote an interesting piece about Biden for the FT in his column, arguing that Biden was going to be much more on the left than people expect. Uh, Janan, is Biden the, 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 the second coming of FDR? Or will he be the second coming? Maybe not quite as spectacular a change as, uh, as FDR. But I can't think of any recent Democratic president who has a platform that's quite as progressive as Joe Biden's this time. Um, he's running a bit to the left of Obama, uh, quite a bit to the left of Bill Clinton. And really, you have to go back to Lyndon Johnson in the 60s to find a Democratic president who envisages a much more expansive role for the federal government. Um, and that's in healthcare, it's in education, it's in housing. So I think because Biden is, you know, uh, in his 70s, has always been associated with the center, people assume he's going to govern as a, a pretty strict moderate. And actually, if you dig into his platform, there's, there's quite a bit more ambition in there. So the historical analogy you're arguing is, is more on, on the Truman and Johnson front than on the Roosevelt front. Well, the thing that connects all three of those former presidents is that none of them were expected to be particularly radical change makers. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was an aristocrat. Um, Harry Truman was a complete pragmatist machine politician from the middle of the country. Lyndon Johnson was associated with the South and even a slightly... Um, you know, reactionary, reactionary element of the South until relatively late on in his career. And when he gained the presidency, no one expected him to, to be as progressive as he was. Um, they were still mourning uh, John F. Kennedy, thought of this new guy as, you know, an unreconstructed vulgarian from the South. And he ended up delivering the Civil Rights Act and he ended up delivering Medicare. And I wonder whether Biden will end up following in that tradition of someone who's ostensibly middle of the road, maybe a little bit on the conservative side of the Democratic people. And the way that those previous presidents did it was that they used their outward normality and moderation to uh, relax people. You know, no one, they, they didn't frighten any horses, basically. And it made it impossible for their opponents to accuse them of being extremists. You couldn't accuse Harry Truman or Lyndon Johnson of being a uh, a red flag waving socialist because it, it just looks so implausible. And so they were able to smuggle quite controversial ideas 
under that image. And I think Biden might be in the process of doing something quite similar. So you're suggesting that he's a, an ideological smuggler, that he's secretly a, a bit of a leftist, or is he really just a prisoner of history, given the forces now that are, are driving the Democratic Party in America, particularly uh, after this hot summer of 2020? To what extent is, is, is Biden the driver of, of, of his narrative, or is something else or someone else driving him? Yeah, I don't think he is the driver of it. I think it's, it's by external events. Um, this summer is a good example. You know, the, the protests um, and the reaction to COVID-19 and its, and its mishandling have opened up a bit of space to be more progressive on uh, government policy than he might have had before. But the, I think the events that have driven it go back further. I mean, the, the whole trend of American public opinion is much more center-left, much more social democratic than people assume. If you look at public opinion towards universal health care, that has uh, become much more favorable. Uh, taxes on the rich, people are much more in favor of that than they were a generation ago. Social issues, most of them, people are more progressive than they were um, 20 or 30 years ago. And so really his platform is going with the grain of US cultural development. And the most striking fact I've you know, uh, dwelt on recently in, in public opinion data is that the American public still regard him on a spectrum of left to right as being far closer to the center than Donald Trump, even though they recognize he has moved left. So he was you know, very, very center a while ago. They acknowledge that he's moved left along the spectrum, but he's still far, far closer than Donald Trump. And that means that you can be quite progressive in this country nowadays without being seen as an extremist. What, what do you predict his signature issue is going to be? Will it be health care or is that the morass that you have to avoid in, in, in early 21st century America, given uh, the struggles and damage that it did to the Obama administration? I think it will still have to be health care because you know, the Obamacare extended coverage but didn't completely make it universal. And there are lots of, sort of technical uh, downsides to it as well, which will, which will have to be smoothed out. So I imagine his first effort will be healthcare, possibly taxes on the rich, because there's going to be a fiscal deficit that's enormous. Well, there already is one, but it's going to widen as a result of COVID-19. So either a healthcare bill or a pretty contentious uh, attempt to fix the budget via tax increases on the rich. Um, I think will define his first two years. And of course, the way US politics works, you really have to get your most contentious legislation done early on, because the chances are you lose your midterms, your first midterms anyway. It happened to Bill Clinton in 1994. I remember how, how, how bad Obama did in, in 2010. So uh, before he loses Congress, or loses the House at least, um, he has to be fair, you have to front load any controversial ideas. It's the way politicians do it internationally. You know, Emmanuel Macron's done it in France, um, and that'll have to be Biden's strategy. How dependent, uh, and I think this is an obvious question, I mean, it answers itself, but how dependent is Biden going to be in terms of his legislation on, on winning both houses? I think pretty dependent. I mean, until recently, I thought he had very little chance of getting radical or brave legislation through simply because he wouldn't have the Senate. And if you've got a Republican Senate, even with a small majority, 
um, they'll say no to, to most things. But there's now a chance of the Democrats gaining a slim majority in the Senate. Again, that does not guarantee he gets stuff through because a lot of Democrats represent conservative states and they'll be uh, wary of anything that's too dramatically left-wing. But at least he has a, a theoretical numerical chance of getting um, center-left progressive legislation through in a way that really seemed inconceivable a few months ago. And that's because of the shift in the polls that's taken place since COVID-19. Um, I'm not sure he has a lot of rhetorical power in one which sort of appeal above the heads of Congress to the general public. He's not Obama in that sense. He's not even Clinton in that sense. Um, so he'll have to rely on a lot of legislative skill, you know, the pure politics of politics within Washington to get stuff done. But he's got a good chance because he's been in the Senate for so long. Um, he's a Washington insider in a way Obama wasn't really. He only became a senator in 2004, Obama, I think. Um, so he's got a lot of that uh, beltway knowledge and, and skill, which he'll have to lean on because he does not have the big picture rhetorical ability of some previous presidents. We've had a lot of conversation on this show about the Green New Deal and the uh, the, 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 the challenges to the environment and global warming. How do you imagine uh, Biden's environmental record? Is he going to seriously engage in, 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 in the promise of a Green New Deal? Or is that just, again, uh, exaggerated hope from the left? I, th I think he will engage with it simply because it's been driven by the rest of the party so enthusiastically. You know, there's been a big influx of young energy into the Democratic Party in recent years, both in Congress, but also behind the scenes, you know, new, um, new talent. And that generation is hyper-conscious of climate change in a way that perhaps Biden's generation uh, wasn't. And so he'll, that, that'll be driven by just the, the people around him as much as by Biden himself. It also dovetails pretty well with the economic recovery in that some of the growth industries will be... Um, uh, green tech industries and the financing of green tech and therefore if you try and sketch out an economic strategy over five or ten years to get out of the pandemic and to get out of the fiscal crisis there's no way of doing it without relying to some extent on growing the green sector of the economy so it's it's not a particularly um, politically challenging thing to do lots of people are in uh, favor in the abstract the question is how to do it without falling into the trap that Hillary Clinton fell into, of being associated with wanting to kill off coal and other extractive industries, um, which traditional Democratic voters were attached to. To what extent do you think Biden will address the very architecture of American capitalism, particularly its, its increasingly monopolistic tendencies? Uh, we've got a show coming up in a week or two with Zephyr, a teach out. Um, who's just written a book about the, the, mon the monopolization of, uh, of American capitalism, more and more books on, on that front. Um, will, will, will Biden address that issue, uh, particularly uh, on the antitrust front? I suspect this is where he, he'll be most small C conservative and, and, and not change a lot, simply because it's not a huge part of his platform. You know, to the extent that he's progressive, it's about expanding um, public services and uh, healthcare in particular, in, you know, increasing taxes on high earners, changing the structural element of the private economy. He hasn't talked about quite as much. Um, but it, 
I am amazed that no president or presidential candidate um, has embraced this theme in the way that Teddy Roosevelt did more than 100 years ago when he talked about trust busting and the monopoly that Standard Oil and other companies had on, on the US economy. No one has really gone for that subject. Um, and it may be because of the effectiveness of K Street uh, lobbying here in Washington, uh, where the private sector kind of kills off a lot of those ideas pretty early on or uh, smooths out the rough edges in a way that's very favorable to them. Um, but no politician is talking about it. It's, I, I agree with you, it's a big intellectual subject and a big subject of, of non-fiction books in recent years. But there always seems to be a lag between something that enters the intellectual ecosystem as an idea and then the period when it becomes politically discussed and turned into legislation. Um, and that might be another five or 10 years. But um, to me, it's the, it's the issue that's screaming out of the US economy more than anything else. One issue that, of course, has gone from book writing to the street is Black Lives Matter. 20, the summer of 2020 has been the summer of, of Black Lives Matter. Uh, what do you see Biden doing on both the, the, the race front and in terms of trying to fix the American police force and the criminal justice system? Well, the... The, the, the way this plays out in a way that's sort of, that sort of works for the Democrats is that a lot of the, the, the Black Lives Matter issues to do with, you know, bad housing, uh, worse job prospects, um, educational opportunities are things that the Democrats would want to talk about um, and fix anyway. And so they can sort of combine the Black Lives Matter campaign with a broader theme of social democratic reform of um, public life in America. Um, the police thing in many, in many ways is tougher to fix because it's not a uniquely federal issue. You know, it's, it's a municipal issue, it's a state level issue, and then to some extent it's a federal issue. So, you know, he, he can do some things, but he can't completely set the agenda on police reform. That will be left to politicians several tiers below him in the hierarchy. But on broader, you know, welfare reform, uh, improving public services, improving the quality of housing, um, and creating more and better jobs. It's stuff that he would want to do anyway, that most Democrats would want to do anyway. And the recent salience of race in this country doesn't work against any of that stuff. It, it sort of amplifies it and combines pretty well with it. So I think he'll try and sell it on, on, on that front as a new reason to do things that should have been done years ago anyway. Uh, Jan, and it may be because you're an Arsenal fan, but you're making politics sound really boring again, which I guess for most of us point of view is actually a good thing. Um, you're, you're suggesting that Biden isn't going to change much. Can America just go back in a post-Trump world to being pre-2016 America again, or has something profoundly changed here? Well, I think something absolutely has changed. And um, in many ways, it would have changed earlier, but it just took a candidate to come along in 2016 and um, make the argument for a complete rupture with everything that had happened before. Um, lots of things will change. I think you're going to see, as I say, a much more left-wing Democratic Party for the foreseeable future and a much more right-wing Republican Party, at least on uh, culture. I can imagine the Republicans becoming, interestingly, a bit more... Um, in favor of a big state in economic terms. Remember, Trump won that primary contest in 2016 by saying, I'm not gonna take away your social security. 
and I'm not a complete free trader. I mean, I'm open to tariffs. And those are not traditional right-wing Republican themes. They're a bit more you know, statist, you would say. So I think the, the future I sort of envisage, in the, at least in the medium term, is you have two parties who are relatively open to a larger state if it helps to reduce inequalities. Um, but the cultural difference will get wider and wider and you'll have a much more culturally conservative Democrat, uh, sorry, Republican Party and a much more quote-unquote woke Democratic Party. And so the consensus on culture, which did seem to exist for a while when I was growing up, will be smashed to pieces. But perversely, there'll be a kind of convergence on some elements of economic policy. So I think politics will be very, very different. And of course, underlying all this is just the gigantic demographic change in the country um, and the rise of ethnic minorities, which will cause a lot of anxiety. But um, there's no way things are going back to the pre-2016 dispensation. You actually argue in in your latest column that the real threat to liberalism comes uh, in a a post-Trump Republican Party, uh, which I think um, is is chilling to, to most liberals. Yeah, and it's all to do with the issue of competence. I mean, people dwell on Trump's views, which are you know, illiberal, and a lot of liberals would find them daunting and scary. But because he's not a very technically skilled president, not a kind of administrative president, uh, it's, it's just been very difficult for him to enact the views that people find objectionable. Whereas were you to have in four years or eight years or 12 years, someone like Tom Cotton, the, the senator from Arkansas, or Josh Hawley, another young senator, or Nikki Haley, or Mike Pompeo as president, people who are equally or similarly conservative as Donald Trump, but much more able to get things done because they've been in Washington longer or they're just better at detail. You would have the worst of all worlds for liberals. You would have technical competence allied to a conservative agenda. And so in many ways, as, as much as liberals have found the last four years difficult and disturbing, the real threat is the next iteration of republicanism when you blend competence with conservatism. And I think that's, that, that is coming. The question how, is who it will be. How bloody is the Republican Party going to be if, if Trump is indeed defeated and defeated badly in November? Won't there be a bloodletting? Uh, the, the never Trumpers, the, uh, the Lincoln people, aren't they all going to come charging back in and fingers pointing, trying to, in their language at least, modernize the party, make it more viable? I mean, is, is Nikki Haley is not as anti-liberal as some of the others either, surely? No, I mean, but, but she's not quite a, a, a Lincoln Project uh, moderate either. I mean, she's kind of not quite the middle, but a bit closer to the, the Trump end of things. Um, there absolutely will be the mother of all battles if he loses um, between the moderates who will say, I told you so, this guy was a disaster. Um, we're now no longer trusted as a party. And the people who will defend Trump to the death. But the reason that, that battle is ultimately gonna end in favor of the Trump supporters is that the actual base of the party has changed in his image over the past four years. I mean, all the polling suggests that the, the people who determine who gets chosen in a primary election uh, within the Republican party are much more towards the populist end of things than the Lincoln Project sort of establishment side of the party. And so they, they, you know, as, as, as assertive as the Lincoln Project people will be, and the moderates will be, and even some former Republican 
presidents or senators will be in the argument. They just don't have the numbers at base level, I think, to determine uh, the future of the party. That is going to belong to people who are like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley, much more conservative, Trumpian in all senses, apart from, as I say, presentation and, and technical ability to, to govern. We got Stuart Stevens on the show next week. I'm not sure he will agree with you. Uh, finally, Janan, uh, the election itself and the threat of violence, you talked in metaphorical terms of people defending Trump to their death, but there are people who believe that the November election could degenerate into violence. What's the chances of that? Uh, as well as, of course, the chances of Trump just uh, delegitimizing the whole thing, calling for martial law or refusing to go? Well, I'm, I'm still fundamentally a believer in American institutions containing a lot of this anger and division. I mean, if you look at the past four years, whenever the, whenever the courts ruled against him, you know, what, he, he either changed the policy until it was legal again or appealed. You know, he didn't go and arrest the judge. There wasn't violence on the streets about a particular court decision when he lost the midterm elections in 2018, and he lost them pretty badly, there was never any question of not acknowledging the results or overriding it in some way or you know, ignoring it. And again, there was no mass civil disorder after those midterm elections. So I think the US system still has the ability to go through a very contentious, divisive presidential election. Um, a lot of disappointed people, I mean, tens of millions of disappointed people, without tipping over into politics uh, that, that takes a, a bloodier form. So I'm a, I'm a relative optimist on that front. Your second question is a, is a bit more troubling. Eh? Is it, if it's a very narrow result, does he himself say, actually, because of postal voting, because there wasn't a proper campaign, because of all kinds of foreign interference, this wasn't a legit, legitimate result. I would not put that past him at all. And in recent weeks, he's begun dropping a few breadcrumbs, which might result in that kind of argument in November. Um, but ultimately, the system hasn't had a, uh, uh, the system has been able to contain every previous election process, however contentious, in a relatively peaceful way. And so if you're betting with, with form and history, um, you'd have to say that the likeliest result, if he loses, is a, is a peaceful uh, and orderly transition of power. And in one word, uh, Janan, is he toast? Is he done? Will he, be, will he, will he lose in, 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 in 2020? Will we see a, a President Biden? He's losing, but I don't think he's toast. And the thing I would look out for are those presidential debates in the autumn, where Biden, who's never been a particularly reliable speaker under pressure, will be on you know, mass worldwide television, under attack from Trump, on a stage, if Trump has a hope at all, I think it lies in those TV debates. Oh, dear. You've depressed me. Uh, finally, finally, uh, Janan, you, you've written a book about um, Osborne, the uh, English, uh, British uh, chancellor uh, in the Cameron government. Uh, you also write an essential uh, twice a week column for the FT about American politics. What else should people be reading? You're stuck in DC, I'm in Berkeley, we're all stuck inside and reading is essential to make sense of the world. Books or articles or writers, what's, what's on your mind at the moment? Well, there's been a very clear uh, literary theme for me during the lockdown and I wasn't expecting it. Basically what's happened is that because I can't travel um, or travel has become very unpleasant, 
I've ended up replicating the rest of the world via literature. You know, I've been reading books and stories from the furthest flung exotic places to compensate for the fact that I can no longer go there. So the, the books I've been thinking of in particular are The Quiet American by Graham Greene, which is set in the Vietnam of the 1950s when it was still under French uh, rule. And that gives you a sense of the, you know, the sounds and smells of Southeast Asia, which is a, a place I enjoy visiting, but obviously can't for the foreseeable future. And then The Bend in the River by V.S. Naipaul, which is set in an unnamed uh, African country, written in the 1970s, I think, um, about decolonization. And again, it takes you absolutely to the heart of a place that you can't um, very easily visit now or um, for a while. And so the big theme when it comes to reading books, but also when it comes to watching movies over the past four months, has been to go as far as possible uh, into stories from the furthest flung places. And I imagine when, if and when normality returns, I'll become much more parochial in my reading and just read about the UK, the US and Western Europe, sadly. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.